invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to our text this Lord's Day, as it's found in Daniel chapter 10. And we'll begin reading verse 15 to the end of the chapter. <clears throat> Once again, Daniel 10, 15. And when he had spoken such words unto me, I set my face toward the ground, and I became dumb. Behold, one like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spake, and said unto him that stood before me, O my Lord, by the vision my sorrows are turned upon me and I have retained no strength. For how can the servant of this my Lord talk with this my Lord? For as for me straightway there remained no strength in me, neither is there breath left in me. Then there came again and touched me one like the appearance of a man, and he strengthened me and said, O man greatly beloved, Fear not, peace be unto thee. Be strong, yea, be strong. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened me. Then said he, Knowest thou wherefore I come unto thee? And now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia. And when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. But I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth. And there is none that holdeth with me in these things, but Michael, your prince. We return this Lord's Day uh, after a considerable uh, detour for several weeks back to the text, Daniel chapter 10, where we will be considering this amazing vision that is given unto Daniel through the agency of angels in Daniel chapter 10 through chapter 12. This is all one uh, vision, one last revelation uh, to Daniel. This amazingly detailed prophecy of future events that we find particularly in Daniel 11 and Daniel 12 is so accurate by way of the history that is prophesied to come that skeptics claim this could not be a prophecy, but is rather a summary of historical events that have already occurred, written hundreds of years after Daniel claims to have written them. However, 
this book of Daniel was received by the Jewish church of the Old Testament as a part of the canon of Scripture uh, long before, again, there was uh, this particular alleged event of, of a, another man by the name of Daniel assuming to be the prophet Daniel back in uh, the th 300s uh, before Christ, that this really was already approved. This was already received as a part of the Jewish canon of Scripture before uh, this pseudo-Daniel allegedly uh, wrote what we find here. Moreover, the Lord Jesus Christ has spoken with the supreme authority, for he quotes from the book of Daniel, as do the apostles in the epistles as well, uh, when they refer to the Son of Man coming with the clouds. Again, these are references uh, to the account uh, that we find in Daniel and particularly in Daniel chapter 7 and in Daniel chapter 9, those chapters specifically. Daniel chapter 10 is more of a introduction or a preface to the prophecy that we find in chapters 11 and 12. And in Daniel chapter 10, we're, we're going to, God willing, finish that chapter, considering that chapter this Lord's Day. In chapter 10, the Lord prepares Daniel for what he is about uh, to see, what is about to be revealed to him by way of this amazing vision uh, through uh, angelic agency. Daniel became, as we'll see as we work our way through the text, became so enthralled, was so overwhelmed by the appearance, first of a vision that was given to him in verses 5 through 6 of Jesus himself in all of his glory, that particular vision in verses 5 through 6 very closely parallels the vision that John received of the Lord Jesus in uh, Revelation. Uh, chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. And Daniel was so overcome by seeing this amazing vision of Christ uh, that he became very, very weak. He lost all of his strength. He couldn't move. Uh, that's how weak he became in the presence of the Lord Jesus in this this particular uh, revelation that was given unto him. As we acquire knowledge, uh, knowledge from God's word, when that knowledge is not turning us to behold the Lord Jesus as that revelation turned Daniel to behold the Lord Jesus. When our knowledge doesn't turn us to Christ, when it's not 
glorifying Christ, when it's not exalting Christ, I dare say that our knowledge is falling far short of the goal and the end of true knowledge. And that is to glorify God. And that is to enjoy the Lord Jesus through a blessed nearness and communion and fellowship with him. If we're truly learning from scripture what God has revealed in his truth, it will not turn us from Christ. It will not make Christ less conspicuous and obvious in our life, but the more we truly learn and grow in knowledge, it will turn us more and more to Jesus Christ. You see, that's the test of whether we're really growing in knowledge. Is it turning us more and more to Jesus Christ as our prophet, as our priest, and as our king? Well, let's consider the following two questions from our text this Lord's Day. The first question is, when are we strong in the Lord? And the second question is, who is Michael the Archangel? So the first question, when are we strong in the Lord? Again, just a brief review so that we are brought up to speed from previous sermons in Daniel chapter 10. After Daniel received the vision of the exalted Lord Jesus in verses 5 through 6 of this chapter, Daniel, as we said, was left in basically a physically helpless condition in verses 7 through 9. The angel Gabriel appeared unto Daniel and strengthened him and encouraged him in verses 10 through 11. Uh, Though Gabriel is not mentioned by name in chapter 10, he is mentioned by name in chapter 8, verse 16, and in chapter 9, verse 21, as basically the interpreting angel, the one who conveys unto Daniel in these visions and these revelations uh, the, uh, the knowledge that God would give unto uh, Daniel. And so, again, uh, there is such similarity here with this angel that appears in chapter 10 with Gabriel, as we see in chapter 8 and chapter 9, that there is a natural association and identification that this is also uh, Gabriel in chapter 10. Gabriel then informed Daniel that he had been sent by the Lord to give Daniel a revelation of things that were to come in answer to Daniel's prayer in verse 14 of chapter 10, but that the angel Gabriel had been delayed 21 days, three weeks, due to a spiritual battle that was waged between himself, Gabriel, and the fallen angelic prince of Persia, in verses 12 through 13 of Daniel 10. 
This spiritual battle was won by Gabriel and with the help of Michael, who was called to assist and to help Gabriel in defeating this demonic influence of this uh, fallen prince, angelic prince of Persia, who was seeking to exercise influence over the king, the human king of Persia, so that the human king of Persia would not uh, defend God's people Israel, who had been sent back to Jerusalem, had been released from captivity, and so that the king of Persia, the human king of Persia, would not supply all of the needs that the people of Israel needed in order to rebuild the temple and the city of Jerusalem. And so there was this spiritual battle going on between these angelic forces, the evil, wicked prince of Persia fighting in the spiritual realm against Gabriel and Michael. And again, uh, because we find that 21 days later that Gabriel appears unto Daniel that at least at that particular time the victory was won and that Gabriel then could bring the message of God's revelation unto Daniel. As we'll see at the, at the end of this chapter, uh, Gabriel has to return. He says, I've got to return now back uh, to war against the prince of Persia. Uh, and it just illustrates the fact that uh, just because there is one battle that is won uh, here upon the earth, whether it's in this case or in our own lives, even the temptations brought against the Lord Jesus by Satan, those temptations in the wilderness after the Lord Jesus resisted the devil and the devil fled from him. It says he left for a season. For a season, because again, that's the way the enemy is. But we continue to fight because we do have God. We do have the Lord Jesus. We do have his holy angels fighting with us on our behalf. <clears throat> this decisive victory against the enemy has been already won by the Lord Jesus Christ, as we've noted in the recent sermons even if it appears in history at any particular time, well, the devil has won the day. Perhaps we look at our culture, our nation, the nations of this world, society, the various movements, organizations, political powers and that are working on behalf of that which is evil, and we conclude from just mere appearance the devils won the day but here the Lord is saying to us again that he only allows Satan 
as it were, enough room to move at different times of history in order that he may show then his power, God's power, to overcome the enemy. Think of Job. That the Lord allowed Satan in that case. It appeared Satan had won the day. But again, as we read through Job, no, the Lord allowed Satan room to move and to exercise his desire against Job. But all of that was under the control of the Lord God. He could not do any more than God permitted. But God shows to us it was God who won the day. Not the enemy, not the devil. Likewise, when we see in the ministry of the Lord Jesus the various occasions where there is demonic activity, uh, where there are demons that possess individuals and those manifest themselves in, in, in the presence of Christ. And they, they have controlled and they have ruled over these people's lives in such cruel and devastating ways. It may appear the devil has won the day. He's been victorious from all appearance and sight. That's what one might conclude. But the Lord Jesus shows once again that he's the one who rules. He's the one who controls as he casts those demons out and none can resist his will. And they even come out shouting and screaming because they don't want to come out, but they must come out because Jesus rules. Jesus is king. Jesus is prince. And they must submit to his will. But Jesus has conquered because he has died, been raised from the dead, and been enthroned at God's right hand to secure that victory over all of his enemies and over all of our enemies. Not one enemy has control over the Lord Jesus. Therein, dear ones, is our hope. No matter how dark the tunnel that you may be in right now, that's the hope that we have. He will rescue us by either removing that trial altogether from us or by giving us the grace to persevere through that trial in order to grow in Christ through that trial. You see, perseverance and patience are not probably two graces that we're necessarily praying for because perseverance and grace and, and uh, patience are graces that God gives to us and that are manifested in the midst of hardships and trials, suffering. We don't usually manifest, uh, think of manifesting patience and perseverance when everything's just going the way that 
that we wanted to go. But rather, when things are very, very difficult and the enemy is assailing and attacking, when we feel so weak that we can hardly, whether physically or spiritually or emotionally or familially or ecclesiastically, better, uh, that we can barely lift ourselves up, we feel as if our, our face is glued to the ground. That's when we need perseverance. That's when perseverance and patience is manifested. That's when he gives that grace to be steadfast, to endure to the end. James 1, verses 3 through 4, we read, Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting, that is, lacking nothing. It comes through the trying of your faith. Patience and perseverance comes through testing you with all the trials. And we may cry out in the midst of our weaknesses in those trials, Lord, deliver me. It's not that God does not hear us when we cry out for his deliverance. Many times he does not want to take us immediately out of those situations. Many times he says, I have much more for you to learn through the trial that you're going through. You see, our natural inclination is to want to be out of that trial immediately and entirely. But that is how we learn in the school of Christ to be steadfast and to wait upon the Lord, which is what he calls us to do throughout the scripture. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. That you may be able to bear it. That's how we learn. That's how we grow. Is in that crucible, in that testing, in those trials. And I'm right with you in wanting those trials to simply be taken away altogether. I understand that feeling very much so. But the Lord says to me, as he does to you, in my time, trust me, cling to me, hope in me, flee to me, find your strength and your weakness in me. God is more concerned, dear ones, with our character and our growth in Jesus Christ than in our mere physical comfort. 
even when it is darkest, our precious Jesus is still on the throne. Daniel, having gone through this first period of weakness, not being able to raise himself and, and Gabriel gives him strength, he actually goes through a second time of weakness. All within the, the same vicinity general period of time in Daniel chapter 10. Notice in verses 15 through 17. Daniel 10, 15 through 17. And when he had spoken such words unto me, that is Gabriel, I set my face toward the ground and I became dumb. And behold, one like the similitude of the sons of men touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spake and said unto him that stood before me, O my Lord, by the vision my sorrows are turned upon me and I have retained no strength. For how can the servant of this my Lord talk with this my Lord? For as for me straightway there remained no strength in me, neither is there breath left in me. So Daniel had just gone through a great weakness and was strengthened in Daniel 10, verses 8 through 9. And now again, a second time, he is brought to see his weakness. Why? Daniel became weak again. He is brought to see his weakness once again in order that he might not forget that such great revelations from God were not due to his strength, were not due to his greatness, were not due to his knowledge, were not due to his holiness, but rather these revelations came to him who is weak in order to show to him God's mercy, God's love, that no flesh, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. There was even the great heroes of faith in Scripture and subsequent to the completing of the canon of Scripture as well, but particularly in Scripture, even the great heroes of faith were shown their weakness that they might look to the strength of the Lord to uphold and to sustain them. Moses saw his weakness in being slow in speech in order that he might cast himself upon the strength of God to go before Pharaoh and to deliver God's people out of Egyptian bondage. Gideon was shown his weakness in fearing the Midianites in order to see and understand the strength of God in being able to use 300 men to overcome 120,000 Midianites. Peter was shown his weakness in denying the Lord Jesus, not once but three times in order that the strength and the power of God might be manifested in Peter, 
who became a mighty spokesman, unafraid to stand before the multitudes, before rulers. Paul was shown his weakness, this thorn in the flesh, in order that, again, God's power might be perfected in his weakness. God reveals, dear ones, to us our weaknesses physically, our sins, our weaknesses spiritually, our weaknesses emotionally. He reveals this that we might turn from ourselves to behold our Savior and our King as our strength, as our defense, as our fortress, as our provider, as our helper, as our deliverer. Why would we flee to Jesus Christ if we thought we were strong enough in ourselves? We wouldn't. We would continue to rely upon ourselves if we didn't see and understand our weaknesses. Our weaknesses, dear ones, reveal our constant need of Jesus and constant communion with Christ. Not just once in a while, but throughout the day to be in communion with Jesus, calling out to him throughout the day. But are we not told by the world uh, by our culture, by schools, uh, by organizations, that we are to believe in ourselves, that we are to be self-confident, that we are to be strong and not weak. Dear ones, all of the gifts that we have God has given to them, given them to us, not in order for us to take pride in, not in order for us to have self-confidence and to build ourselves up in them, but to have confidence in the Lord who gives us those gifts. That we might use them not to glorify ourselves, but that we might use them to glorify him. You see, boasting in our abilities is pride. It's robbing God of his glory. Now, I'm not saying that it's wrong to, be, to fairly assess your abilities and your strengths but also to fairly assess your weaknesses. I'm not saying that it's wrong to, to examine that in your life. But when 
it turns to basically being simply confident in your ability to do things in your own strength, then you are robbing God. Then I am robbing God of his glory. We can do many things, certainly in our own strength, but we can do nothing to the glory of God in our own mere strength. We can't do anything that's going to glorify God in our own mere strength. And I submit to you, dearens, we are most vulnerable to revealing our weakness when we glory in our own strength. Then we set ourselves up for a fall. Wherefore, let him that thinketh he standeth take heed, lest he fall. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 12. We are most vulnerable, dear ones, to revealing our weakness like Samson. He took pride in his strength, and his weakness was revealed. But when he realized, came to his senses spiritually before God, what he had done, and he turned to the living God for his strength, he did learn again that in God was his true strength, not in himself, not in his hair, but his true strength was in the living God. So let us rejoice in our gifts that God has given to us, but let us be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might in the use of those gifts to the glory of God. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, as I mentioned earlier, was given a thorn in the flesh a messenger of Satan to afflict him in order to keep him from boasting in the revelation that God had given to him of heavenly glory. This was likely true of Daniel as well. Weakness was given to him in order to humble him at the revelation that God was about to give unto him. And it's also true of us as it was with Paul, and as it was with Daniel. Pride, dear ones, pride is more likely to exalt itself in us when all is going well, just as we want. That's when we have to be especially ready for the attack of pride, when everything is going so well we're much more vulnerable to pride, I submit to you, in those situations. Not when we are prostrate upon our faces because of the trials, because we've been overwhelmed by the waves and storms that have been brought against us and they have pushed us to the ground. It's not as likely that we're filled with pride in those situations. 
but more when everything's going just as we want it to go. And so we need to be watchful. We need to be vigilant at those times. Praise God when things go well. Thank him. Rejoice in his goodness and in his blessings. But at the same time, beware that the enemy is looking for some occasion for us to simply take pride in all that we have as if that was what we brought about. As if that was what we did with our own, in our own strength, by way of our own gifts, praising ourselves. And that's why we need to see our weaknesses, dear ones. Weakness turns us from ourselves to find our strength in Christ. And that was, that was true in the life of the Apostle Paul. Notice what he says about that thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians 12, verses 8 through 10. He says, For this thing I besought the Lord thrice, that is three times, that it might depart from me. And he, that is God, said unto me, My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. He doesn't say my strength is made perfect in your strength. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. When you see yourself weak. Most gladly, he continues, therefore will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in necessities, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. How can we possibly lose if we truly understand and apply that truth in our lives more and more consistently? How can we possibly lose when I am weak in myself, then I am strong in the Lord? Don't despair, dear ones, in your weakness. Whatever your weakness is, whatever the trial you're facing today, do not despair. That's where the enemy wants to lead you. There is hope. Jesus wants you to know and experience that you can be strong. You who trust in him alone for your eternal salvation. You can be strong in your weakness. You can be strong in the Lord in your own weakness. And dear ones, if we only focus on the weakness, if that's where our focus is placed, just on our weakness, on our failures, on our sins, though we need to look at those, but if that's, the, that's all that we focus on, that's where we'll stay. That's where we'll stay. In that darkness, hopelessness, and despair. But if we focus on Jesus, if we focus on his power, upon his promises, we will be 
made perfect. Our strength will be made perfect in our weakness. I can do all things, Paul said, through Christ, which strengtheneth me. So in his weakness, Daniel was strengthened by God through this angel, the angel Gabriel, in verses 18 through 19. Then there came again and touched me one like the appearance of a man, and he strengthened me and said, O man greatly beloved, fear not, peace be unto thee, be strong, yea, be strong. And when he had spoken unto me, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for thou hast strengthened, strengthened me. Daniel did not get up on his own strength, but in the strength of the Lord, in the power of his might, God's might. We have to learn this lesson every day, every day, afresh and anew. Not to be strong in our own strength, but to be strong in the strength of the Lord and in the power of his might. That's why we need, again, to be communing with Jesus Christ throughout the day. That's the means that God has appointed for us to be strengthened, our minds, our thoughts, even as we work, that we are yet in fellowship with the Lord. We're not leaving Christ behind when we go to work. We're not relegating Christ to one room in our house, but he has access to every room in our house. Wherever we go, whatever we do, we're in communion with him. He's walking with us throughout the house in every room. Just as, by way of illustration, just as there is no power to a lamp for that lamp to shine and bring forth its light, there's no power in that lamp unless it is plugged into the electrical receptacle. Uh, the cord may be held far away or you can even move the cord closer, but there's not gonna be any power to turn that lamp on unless, again, that plug, that cord, is abiding in the electrical receptacle. It must abide there. When it's not abiding there, the power to the lamp is not there. You need, I need in my life and in your life to be abiding, communing with Jesus if we are to see the power of his light working and operating in our life day by day. Gabriel then relates to Daniel that he is on a, a mission from God, in verses 20 through 21. Then said he, knowest thou wherefore I come unto thee? And now will I return to fight with the prince of Persia, and when I am gone forth, lo, the prince of Grecia shall come. But I will show thee that which is noted in the scripture of truth, and there is none that holdeth with me in, 
these things, but Michael, your prince. So that mission of Gabriel was twofold, was to reveal to Daniel the truth of what is to come in the future by way of future events, which he does in chapters 11 and 12. But a second part of that mission was to return to spiritually battle against the prince of Persia, that dark, demonic, spiritual, angelic prince, fallen angelic prince, because apparently the influence of that prince of Persia was now being exerted once again over the king, the human king of Persia, uh, who was not uh, following, again, the, the steps that he had originally ordained to provide for Israel, the, the people of God who had returned uh, to Jerusalem. And so now Gabriel says he must return to continue that battle against this fallen angelic prince of Persia. The victory is certain, though the battle is fought every day. Once again, Gabriel explains that there is one who stands with him in this battle against these demonic forces in high places. He says, it is Michael, your prince, in verse 21. Michael had been mentioned earlier in Daniel 10.13, you'll recall, where it says, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me one and twenty days, but lo, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, and I remained there with the kings of Persia. I reserved a consideration of this question as to who Michael is until we came to the end of of chapter 10, and so now uh, in the, our remaining time, I just want to give an overview, not an exhaustive study, but an overview of who is Michael uh, the Archangel. Though such questions may arise, and, and they, are, they are relevant questions, I think at the same time we, sh we should seek to understand uh, certainly what scripture teaches. But this, I would submit to you, is, is a question over which Bible-believing scholars, uh, both past and present, do not speak with unanimity. Thus, in seeking to answer uh, the question, we do seek, as always, to speak the truth in love. And, uh, and I, I will present to you, in summary form, I think the strongest case uh, for each position, there's two positions that uh, I'll lay out. And uh, again, I do lean uh, toward one of those positions. Uh, and again, I submit to you this testimony for you to consider. And uh, because I, again, I, I though it, it's not something upon which our salvation may be based by way of an interpretive question. Nevertheless, uh, no question that we might ask is unimportant when it comes to Scripture and seeking to know 
what God has said in his word. So the two positions that we will very briefly consider are these. The first position is this. Michael is a created angel and one of the chief angels of God. The second position is Michael is a name for the uncreated son of God, Jesus Christ. Just by way of general information, Michael means who is like God. That's what his name in Hebrew means, who is like God. He's mentioned by name five times in Scripture. In this chapter, twice, uh, verse 13 and verse 21. He's also mentioned by name in Daniel 12, 1. He's mentioned uh, likewise in Jude 1, 9. And then in Revelation 12, verse 7. Here in chapter 10, he is given the title of Prince, verse 21, where it says, uh, But Michael, your prince. As well as the title of Archangel in Jude 1 9. So let's consider the first position. Michael is a created angel and one of the chief angels. What's the case to be made for this? Now, I'm, I'm going to not, if I had more time, I would uh, read uh, all of the passages of Scripture, but I'm going to refer you to them and probably summarize just very briefly what those passages are saying, and I'll leave it up to you to pursue uh, the study of this on your own or in your families. So the first point for this position. Angels are created beings and are distinguished from the Son of God. In Hebrews chapter 1, for example. Throughout that chapter, it's pointing out that Jesus, the Son of God, is not an angel, uh, that he is the Son of God, and it goes back and forth that, uh, about angels and verses uh, the Son of God. Uh, we see also in Revelation 22, verses 8 through 9, where an angel, an interpreting angel, uh, reveals revelation to John. John is so overwhelmed, he falls down to worship before the angel, and the angel stops him and says, I'm, I'm a fellow servant like you, and like the prophets. Uh, don't worship me, worship God. And so, again, that distinction made between God and angels. Secondly, uh, Michael is given the title of Archangel in Jude 1 9. That is uh, the chief or prince of the angels, according to this particular position or view. The chief or prince of the angels, the chief angel or the chief prince uh, of angels. Next, uh, Michael is said to be, quote, one of the chief princes. That is, one of the chief angelic princes in verse 13. Uh, so, according to this view, Michael, Michael has co-equal chief princes, whereas Jesus does not have co-equal uh, princes. He is said above all. Next, 
Michael, the archangel, uh, in Jude 1.9, did not rebuke Satan in his own name, which if he was Jesus Christ, this position asserts that uh, he would have rebuked Satan in his own name, being the Son of God. But rather, in Jude 1.9, Michael rebukes Satan in the Lord's name. He rebuked him in the name of the Lord. And then one last point. Michael comes to help the angel Gabriel, as we've noted in chapter 10, verse 13 and verse 21. He comes to help Gabriel, uh, which, again, according to this, this view, would seem to indicate that he himself was an angel. He came alongside being a superior angel, more powerful than Gabriel. Uh, nevertheless, he comes to help and assist uh, Gabriel in, the, in these spiritual wars and battles. All right, that's one position. The second position is this. Michael is a name for the uncreated Son of God, namely Jesus, uh, particularly in the Old Testament, but Michael, as I said, the name appears also in the New Testament on a couple different occasions as well. First point about this position, the word angel in both Hebrew and Greek uh, means messenger. And there are created messengers, and there is an uncreated messenger, or angel of God, who in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord, the angel of God, is called God, and is worshipped as God. For example, you remember in the case of Hagar, when she was put out of the house by Sarah and took with her her son Ishmael. And it says the angel of the Lord appeared unto Hagar. And she, she after um, the blessing which the angel of the Lord br brings upon Hagar, she, she affirms that she uh, had seen God. She says that... Uh, uh, amazingly, uh, she is living, though she saw God. Abraham, you remember uh, the three uh, angels that came uh, to visit Abraham before the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, uh, they are identified as angels. Uh, first, they are identified as three men. In chapter 18, verse 19, it says two of the angels went to Sodom and Gomorrah. So again, we understand these to uh, be identified as angels, and yet one of the angels, the one that remained behind in the case of Abraham, uh, is called Lord or Jehovah. Uh, and uh, in fact, it says that in the destruction brought upon, upon Sodom and Gomorrah that it says, the Lord Jehovah rained fire and brimstone upon Gomorrah from the Lord and Jehovah out of heaven. And that is, again, uh, the identified the angel of the Lord there in that particular case is identified with Jehovah, being Jehovah, as being the Lord. Moses, 
the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, says that the angel of the Lord appeared unto him out of the, uh, this uh, bush that was on fire and was not consumed. And then it goes on to say that, that God uh, was appeared unto him out of the burning bush, the next verse. It, it, it changes from the angel of the Lord appearing in the, in the burning bush to God appearing in the burning bush. Again, it seems, again, to identify the angel of the Lord as being God. Uh, in the case of uh, Joshua, uh, in Joshua 5, verses 13 through 15, um, this is before uh, the battle of Jericho, and uh, uh, Joshua is out meditating, praying, and there's one, a being that meets him, that is uh, a warrior that has a sword, and and the dialogue goes back and forth, and this uh, particular warrior identifies himself as the commander of uh, and captain of the Lord's hosts. Joshua, it says in the text, bows down and worships him, worships before him. Um, there's nothing said by that warrior, that captain of the Lord's, Lord's host. That is, when it says host, it's talking about angels. So here is the captain of the Lord's armies, angelic armies. This is who appears to Joshua. And yet Joshua bows down before him and worships. Uh, this, uh, this captain of the Lord's host does not say, as in Revelation, don't worship me. Um, I'm just like you. Worship God. He receives the worship that is offered. No mere angel would do that. And then um, you can look up uh, again in Judges um, the case of um, uh, Gideon. He offers sacrifices to the angel of the Lord. Uh, Manoah, Samson's father, offers sacrifices to the angel of the Lord. Again, uh, that's not uh, to be. That's not to happen uh, in uh, in worship by way of off offering sacrifices to an angel, but this angel receives those sacrifices. In Malachi three one, uh, we read there of the angel of the covenant, and let me just quickly read that for you. Malachi three one. <clears throat> Behold, this is God speaking, I will send my messenger, referring to John the Baptist, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. The messenger as I said, the word, both in Hebrew and in Greek, messenger and angel are 
are the same Hebrew and Greek word, but just translated into English differently. And so we could say the angel of the covenant is who is referred to here and is called the Lord. The Lord. Um, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger or the angel of the covenant in whom you delight. So that's the first point that I make with regard to Michael is a name for the uncreated son of God, Jesus. Next, uh, just as Michael is the prince of God's people, as we've noted in Daniel 10.21, so Jesus is Messiah the prince, as we've already noted in Dan Daniel 9.25, um, as well as Isaiah 9.6. He is called mighty God, prince of peace. Just as Michael is prince over God's people, the visible church at that time, so Jesus is king over God's people. In fact, Jesus was crucified as being called or as taking unto himself the title king of the Jews, king or prince of the Jews. In response to uh, the objection or the point made earlier that Michael is said to be one of the chief princes, uh, just a response to that from this particular position, the second position, Michael is not one of the chief princes uh, in verse 13, but may be also translated that Michael is first not one, uh, one would be the cardinal uh, number, first would be the ordinal number. It can be translated that Michael is first above the chief princes. That is superior to all spiritual and earthly princes as it says in Ephesians 1. Verses 20 through 22, all things have been put beneath his feet. All principalities, all powers, uh, all kingdoms, all rulers have been put beneath his feet. He reigns over all. And this is how, again, uh, this position would explain the fact that Jesus, or that Michael is called the archangel. Uh, not that he is, uh, if this refers to Jesus, not that uh, Michael is a created angel, but that he is the uncreated messenger of the Lord over all created angels. He's an archangel. He rules over all the angels. You remember in John, another point, John 1.18, and uh, says uh, concerning the Lord Jesus, no man hath seen God at any time, the only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So again, Jesus is the declaration of the invisible God. He's the Word. He's the messenger. He is the Word of the Lord that appeared in the Old Testament. He is the messenger of the Lord, the angel of the Lord that appeared in the Old Testament. And again, Lord Jesus says in John 14, 9, 
he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. What about uh, the objection that in Jude 1 9 that the archangel uh, does not rebuke Satan in his own name, but rather in the name of the Lord? Uh, is that uh, a strong objection uh, uh, that is brought? I, I would just say it's not uncommon in Scripture for the Lord to be speaking and for the Lord then to switch to the third person and, and refer to the Lord, um, though he is the Lord, to refer to the Lord. For example, one illustration is in Zechariah 3, verses 1 through 2, where it says, And he showed me, God showed me, Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. And the Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee. So here, the Lord said, The Lord rebuke thee. So the Lord is using the name of the Lord. Uh, instead of saying, uh, And the Lord said, I rebuke thee. Uh, no, he, again, we find here, and the Lord, Jehovah, said, Jehovah, rebuke thee. And so, again, it's, it's not uncommon in Scripture to, to have that type of a reference. This position, the second position, is often associated with that of, the, of Jehovah's Witnesses. And because of that, it's immediately discountenance, not because Jehovah's Witnesses believe that, uh, that Jesus is God or that the angel of the Lord is God, but because they believe the angel of the Lord is Jesus, a created being. Um, and, uh, but I think that it's unfair to discountenance or discredit the position simply because there might be some idea that it's associated with the JW, some, some, some things that I've read online seem to discountenance that, uh, the position because it's in some way associated with JWs, but long before there were any Jehovah Witnesses and that, that their false interpretation, Protestant Reformed scholars of the First and Second Reformation were interpreting Michael uh, to be the uncreated angel or messenger of the Lord, that is Jesus, that appears in Scripture. Jesus is not therefore confined to the New Testament by way of identification of Jesus with the angel of the Lord. He's ministering. He's ministering to his people throughout the Old Testament as well. Many, many times that we find this ties together very beautifully the unity of God's covenant in the Old Testament and in the New Testament by way of Jesus Christ. I, I think probably you've discerned that I do lean toward the second position um, um, as being that which I believe more accurately represents the truth uh, over the first position. The fact that Michael is said to come to the help of Gabriel in Daniel 10, 13 does not mean that he must therefore be a created uh, angel any more than God himself is said to be our helper 
means that he, because he's our helper, that he is a created being like we are. Hebrews 13, 6, and I draw to a close. The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me. And so the Lord, just as, again, Michael was Gabriel's helper and was the helper and keeper and defender of God's people in the Old Testament and is, as Jesus Christ, the defender, the keeper, the preserver of God's people in the New Testament. So he is our helper. Notice that Paul says in Hebrews 13, 6, he doesn't simply say that the Lord is a helper. The Lord is my helper. How does the Lord become your helper in a very personal way? He becomes your helper and my helper through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He becomes my keeper. He becomes my defense. He becomes my fortress, my refuge. He becomes my high tower. He becomes my strength through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Now, he is that, whether I accept him or not, he remains who he is, but he becomes mine, and he becomes yours when you trust in him through faith alone. And so, dear ones, regardless of your struggles today with your health, with relationships, with temptations and sins, Regardless of the spread of evil throughout our society, regardless of the defection within Christ's church or the tyranny of government in our age, let us cling to this. The Lord is my helper, and I will not fear what man shall do unto me.